Okay, we're good. We're in business. Okay, good morning, everyone. Um, I'm Ksenia. I'm a compulsive overeater, food addict, recovered by God's grace for today. Hi, Ksenia. Hi. So can everyone hear me okay? Yeah? All right. Um, So as Nancy mentioned, uh, we're going to be talking about step one today. Um, And we're going to kind of divide it up between both of us, and uh, I'm going to start with the doctor's opinion, and then Martha will get into Bill's story a little bit. Um, We'll each share our own step one experience, and then we'll finish up with um, more about alcoholism. Um, So I guess I'll just jump right in here. Um, So just a little bit about me and my journey. I first came into OA when I was 20 years old, um, and I'm 31 now, um, and it was not a straight path, you know? (laughs) Um, It takes what it takes. Step one, admitted we were powerless over alcohol or for us food, compulsive overeating, that my life had become unmanageable. So in the beginning, the doctor's opinion right? What I was told is I had to identify and I learn a lot about the nature of addiction in the doctor's opinion from a medical professional's point of view who's familiar with with treating alcoholics. Um, So I'm just gonna jump right in here. So on the first page Right. Dr. Silkworth talks about, he speaks of, of medical men's experience with the sufferings of AA members. So it's based out of his own experience, you know, of working with the alcoholics. And he uh, describes them as hopeless and other methods having failed completely. Um, and that's the first question for me to identify with. Am I hopeless? Am I, have I tried so many other methods, you know, um, diets, uh, like just self-help books, I mean, my, my own faith, my, re- my religious background. Um, and then next he talks about, I have here uh, on the next page, we who have suffered alcoholic torture, right? Am I suffering from, from torture, from this, this thing, this, this food obsession, this being in the food? Um, does it feel like torture? If, if it does, I must believe that my body is quite as abnormal as my mind. And I learned that if I didn't buy into this, I was going to remain quite ill. Um, So he talks about, right, this allergy, allergy of the body. And I learned in these rooms that allergy, as it was written, particularly during this time in the 1930s, is an adverse, abnormal physical reaction to a substance. And uh, for me, yes, I can, I can say that I, something happens, right? When I take in 
a donut, you know, potato chips, ice cream, I mean, all different types of stuff. Something happens where I just, it, it kind of like it takes over my thinking and just this pull inside of me, I want more, I want more, I want more. And I will experience that mental torture until I give in. And this will just keep going over and over again. I cannot stop once I start. So he talks about at the bottom of that page, we favor hospitalization for the alcoholic who is very jittery or befogged. More often than not, it is imperative that a man's brain be cleared before he is approached as he has then a better chance of understanding and accepting what we have to offer. So why, why is that important for me? Um, this sub, these substances have an effect on me and more than just like it's my body, it's all consuming. So if I'm being consumed by, by the food and the food behaviors, there's no way, there's no way I'm gonna have you know, space in my brain to hear about the program of recovery that's going to be offered in this book. So I need to put down my substance. I need to identify, be very clear and honest with myself, the foods and the food behaviors. And that may look different, slightly different, a lot different for, for all of us. The most important thing I've learned is that I be honest about it, I voice it out loud, and I share it with, um, for me, I shared it initially with my, my sponsor, but with other fellows as well. All right, so on the next page, the doctor goes on to tell us, if I am afflicted with my alcoholic addiction, which for me is food, um, compulsive overeating, and, and weight controlling behaviors, this book's content is paramount of paramount importance. So in these first couple chapters, right, it's gonna teach me about the nature of the disease and give me a lot of ways to identify in so that I can, I basically need to be sold on these ideas like he, he tells us at the end of the doctor's opinion. I need to be sold because if I'm not, I'm going to resist what's to come in the following pages. Um, he talks about the hopelessness, right, to such an extent. But I also see it's, it's kind of like it's okay that he's talking about it because he, he's going to, or in the book, they're going to offer us a solution, a real workable solution. All right, so... When I first came in, you know, when I was in the food, the talk of, I, I was, you know, I wanted to stop eating compulsively. I wanted to stop eating like this, right? And then they'd talk about this, this, the step work and this spiritual program and solution. It's like, oh, that sounds nice, right? But I wasn't as into that as I was, I just want to stop eating like this, right? Um, 
it sounding nice, could it motivate me to move forward with the step work? Um, what motivated me to move forward with, to put down the substances and, and move forward with the step work was the food, you know, and that torture. I had to admit complete powerlessness over the food and food and weight controlling behaviors. Um, again, I ought to be freed from, from the physical craving because it's going to keep me sick if I just keep engaging in it, obviously, right? It's not just going to stop. And in order for psychological measures to be of maximum benefit. All right. So he goes into on, what is that, Roman numeral 28, talking about the phenomenon of craving. We believe, and so suggested a few years ago, that the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy, that the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. These allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all, and once having formed the habit and found they cannot break it, once having lost their self-confidence, their reliance upon things human, their problems pile up on them and become astonishingly difficult to solve. Yeah, so the phenomenon of craving, right? For me, that's that pull, that super, super strong pull um, that, you know, I can't, I can't will away. I can't. I tried. I tried for years. And um, it beat me down every time. Every single time, no matter how many times I did it. Um, I can never safely use my alcoholic food in any form at all. And uh, I tried the experimentation, right? I tried for me, you know, um, things with like artificial sweetener, um, you know, uh, natural sweeteners, whatever. Oh, it's from Whole Foods, you know, like just if there's any question, right, try it, just go try it. And the food convinced me, um, you know, that I, nope, I get that phenomenon of craving. I have that adverse abnormal reaction. It's gotta be down. Um, Frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices, you know. Um, I couldn't stop for my, for my husband, for my marriage, you know, when I was in relapse in 2018. Um, even though we were throwing around the word divorce after less than two years of marriage, you know. Um, like scares, like health scares, you know, maybe would keep me stopped for a little while, but it wasn't enough to keep me like stay stopped yeah so at the at the bottom of that same page is my it's I think it's my favorite paragraph in this this chapter men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol the sensation is so elusive that while they admit it is injurious they cannot after a time differentiate the true from the false to them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. They are restless, irritable, and discontented unless they can again experience the sense of ease and comfort, which comes at once by taking a few drinks, drinks which they see others taking with impunity. 
After they have succumbed to the desire again, as so many do, and the phenomenon of craving develops, they pass through the well-known stages of a spree, emerging remorseful with a firm resolution not to drink again. This is repeated over and over, and unless this person can experience an entire psychic change, there is very little hope of his recovery. So, you know, I spent years wondering why the heck I kept doing this to myself, you know, why I was eating to the point of passing out in the bed and then waking up in the middle of the night and then eating the food around me again. And the really rapid weight gain and not being able to breathe, you know, um, I, I couldn't understand, but it tells me here why I did it. Ease and comfort. There's, you know, food's but a symptom. I'm looking for ease and comfort. And he tells us, unless we experience an entire psychic change, there's very little hope of his recovery. So it needs to be more than just putting down the food, right? Um, but putting down the food is, is key first before I was able to effectively do uh, the rest of the work. Um. All right, so I think that for right now, I'm going to pass it off to Morrison. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. So I just want to make sure I'm staying on time here. Um, Okay. Let's see. Okay. So, he talks a little bit about, as a medical practitioner, right, like he's, he struggles to help these chronic alcoholics, right? And so what does that look like for me? You know, how many psychiatrists did I try? How many counselors um, to stop doing this to myself, right? To stop eating like this and trying to dissect it, right? Try to analyze it, try trying all types of things to try to control it, right? And none of it worked. Nothing worked. Um, you know, they talk about taking direction and action. The only effort required, or sorry, necessary being that required to follow a few simple rules, right? That they're referring to the solution, the step work, um, you know, this was this this is basically a lot of us have tried other other approaches, right? And we have found that many of us do not respond to the ordinary psychological approach. Um, beat why? Because it's not a problem of entire you know entirely a problem of mental control. It's it's just not. Um, we may have different specific patterns, food behaviors. Um, but the, the commonality is that whatever our food, right, whatever the behavior, once I start, I, I, I will not be able to stop because of the phenomenon of craving, right? And I cannot stay stopped because I have a sick mind, which we're going to talk about more um, specifically and more about alcoholism. Um, so again, just the only relief 
right, we have to suggest is entire abstinence. All right, so I'll pass off to Martha. All right. Hi, everybody. I'm Martha Z. I'm a compulsive reader living in recovery. Hey, Martha. I'm happy to be with all of you. Um, and thank you, Kiseni, for asking me. So I'm going to read my favorite part in Bill's story on page eight, and then I'm going to talk about my step one experience. Okay, so uh, first paragraph. No words can tell of the loneliness and despair I found in that bitter morass of self-pity. Quicksand stretched around me in all directions. I had met my match. I had been overwhelmed. Alcohol was my master. Trembling, I stepped from the hospital a broken man. Fear sobered me a bit. Then came the insidious insanity of that first drink. In an armistice day, 1934, I was off again. Everyone became resigned to the certainty that I would have to be shut up somewhere or would stumble along to a miserable end. How dark it is before the dawn. In reality, that was the beginning of my last debauch. I was soon to be catapulted into what I like to call the fourth dimension of existence. I was to know happiness, peace, and usefulness in a way of life that's incredibly more wonderful as time passes. And I always say I could have written those two paragraphs, especially the second one. And he talks about, he, he talks about the bitter morass of self-pity. And it reminds me in um, the AA 12 and 12 in chapter, uh, step eight, um, he says, what happens when we wallow in depression, self-pity oozing from every pore and afflict this on those about us? And that's a perfect description of me and my disease. And then he says, I'll say food was my master. I, um, I couldn't do what I wanted to do. I couldn't stop doing what I didn't want to do. Um, I couldn't live with the food. I couldn't live without it. Um, I was in complete bondage to it. And if I had to keep doing what I was doing with food, I didn't want to be here anymore. Um, so I'd, I'd say that pretty much sums it up. So I'm going to talk about the second, I'm going to weave the second paragraph through my story. So I'll start with, um, my brother called me pleasingly plump when we were growing up. I was 10 to 15 pounds overweight. And um, I went on my first diet because I was going out with somebody and uh, for about 10 months. And um, I heard that he was dating someone else and he hadn't even broken up with me. And I was completely devastated. And I decided I knew that it was because I was too fat. So I went on my first diet, three meals a day, fruit. Two or three months I lost the weight I needed to lose. But I never wanted to be fat again. And so I kept doing what I called being careful. And so I, I, within seven months, I was down to about 90 pounds. That was not my plan. I just didn't want to be fat ever again. And so at the time, my best friend kept saying, um, why is your mom yelling at you all the time? I'm like, well, I don't know. You know. Um, and my mom, to this day, when she's really scared, it always comes out like anger. And um, so my parents, their bedroom was underneath mine. and. <clears throat> heard my mom crying to my father and you know I'm so worried about Martha I don't know what we're gonna do and so I go down the next day there's a box of cookies on the table and I say um, I'm gonna eat this whole box of cookies and my mom's like no you'll be sick and I'm like no no I'm gonna gain weight and I was a Girl Scout at the time and um, <laughs> let's say I ate all the cookies that I had in my basement pretty much but um, at least five boxes a day probably so in about 
a month I had gained the weight I needed to lose and I, I I'm, excuse me that I needed to gain and I was like okay I'm good let's you know we're good I could not stop and I I this is not scientific this is my thought it is that I have do have a lot of alcoholism in my family I know I had the predisposition and I just think I, I just wouldn't be on the point of tolerance somewhere I after that I I really couldn't stop so really struggled in high school and college and um, it was it was very progressive though you know so in the beginning where I could maybe eat normally three or four days and then binge the next one um, I really got to the point well I, actually I I would eat Monday through Friday but when I by the time I got married and um, I would uh, not eat on the weekend because my husband was home and every weekend I went through withdrawal. So my first uh, anniversary, I was in bed with a washcloth on my head. I had such a bad headache. So that was, you know, that. <laughs> anyway, back to college, I compulsively studied. So I lost weight, I got down to my goal weight. And um, I would say, I'd, all, I'd say all the time, well, you know, now you can have dessert for lunch or dinner. So like, I had no idea about the allergy. And so I, you know, when I wasn't eating sugar or flour while I was dieting, you know, as soon as that got back into my system, I was done. I was on my way back up the day I reached my goal weight. And I was completely baffled. I couldn't understand it. So I graduate from college and I see this article. So it is now, I graduate in December of 76. It's January of 1977. I see this article in the newspaper. It's a Dear Abby article. And it has tradition three, and it says, the only re- it's about away obviously, the only requirement for membership is a desire to stop eating compulsively. So I was like, I knew I was had been up to forty pounds overweight then. Um, I knew, yeah, I wanted to lose weight, but I knew it was the way I ate. It made my life completely unmanageable. It just affected every area of my life. So. I was like, yeah, okay. So I went to OA and I knew that it was the right answer from the second I walked in and it gave me hope because I nobody ate like the way I ate. I, I never heard anybody eat the way I ate. So um, anyway, where am I? Um, so I, I want to say I spent 19 years in my disease. I spent the last 12 of them in OA struggling. So in a way at the time, so this is, this is now January of 1977. Um, we did definitely not know what the problem was. We thought it was food. And um, we, didn't, we didn't, there was no thought that there was any recovery that could be had. We could have some relief. Nobody talked about recovery. And um, anyway, so, um, but we knew that the steps had something to do with it. So we kind of studied the steps. We'd study the AA 12 and 12. I could tell you where everything was. I still remember it all. Um, but I was not working the steps. So in about 1980, the AWOL, the Way of Life program, comes from Boston. And so we start doing this thing. So I did, um, we were actually working the steps then. I did six AWOLs in that about eight-year period and led two of them, and I was never stably abstinent for any of them. I think the longest um, abstinence I had was like three months, maybe, a little over three months. So I will be the first person to say that in order to have an effective experience with these steps, the food has to be down. That is my experience, and I I totally believe it. So anyway, um, 
fast forward, I, oh, so in that 10-year period, um, I'm, I'm getting all confused here. Where am I? Um, okay, so I'm going to fast forward to December of 1988. Um, I'm really struggling. Oh, in that period, I had gotten married and I had two little girls. So um, I call Starting Point. You guys, I'm sure know Starting Point Recovery Center in, in South Jersey. And I talk to the eating disorders specialist. And I say, you know, well, I've been in OA 12 years. And, um, and I start to say to her, oh, she says to me, well, when are you going to put the food down? You know, and I was just like, well, and then I'm, I'm like, I knew the treatment centers were six weeks in Florida. And I'm like, well, isn't there someplace shorter or closer? I've got these two little girls. And she says to me, look, you know, you've got this chronic disease. You have to take care of it. And I, I thought I was a high bottom person. And um, I really did start feeling like I was going to lose everything. I get through Christmas and now it's the beginning of February. It's February 3rd. So I call the treatment center. They check. I, well, I used to joke with my best friend. She had three children. I had two. We'd be like, sure, we'll just go to, we'll just leave the kids. We'll, we'll go to treatment. We'll just leave the kids. You know, and I, I really got to the point where I really felt like I needed to do that. So um, they're going to check my insurance. It's a Friday afternoon. So that next morning was my absolute bottom. I think I might need those tissues now. <laughs> um, I know I'm just I'm just kidding. Um, um, it was my habit on Saturday mornings to get up early and go food shopping, and um, so I got up early, and um, did all the food shopping. Came back, and I broke one of my rules, which was you never go back to bed. I am in bed. I don't know why my husband and my two little girls are in bed. I'm crying. My four-year-old is wiping the tears off my face saying, Mommy's sad. And I am laying there and I'm like going, Oh, God, we, you know, look what's happening. It's affecting everybody. This has to stop. I can't do this. This can't happen anymore. They leave. I get down on my knees and I pray and I just say, God, you know, like, please, it doesn't have to be this treatment center. I don't care. You know, please help me to get the help I need. And if I get a week together and I think I don't need to go, help me to go anyway. That's my prayer. I get a call on Saturday from the treatment center, and they say, can you come on February 15th? And, I, you know, so anyway, it was set that I was going to do that. I get up on February 15th. It is pouring rain. The sky is as black as night, and it was how dark it is before the dawn. And I was, the next part, I was about to be catapulted into, you know, fourth dimension. And, um, I had no idea that everything in my life was about to change. So my father and my brother, they come to pick me up to take me to the airport. My father and brother, who are both functional alcoholics, by the way. Um, my older daughter is sobbing. We get, he leaves them at home. My, my father and brother take me to the airport. We are now, this is, this is um, February in 1989. So they're at the gate with me. And I turned to walk down the ramp, and I felt like the jail door was closing on me. And I'm thinking, what is wrong with this picture? Like, I'm the wellest person in the family, and I'm going to treatment. You know, and I, it's like, when I think about it now, I think, that makes perfect sense. I was the only one that wasn't in denial. But it, it really seemed really ironic to me at the, at the time. So I'm sitting on the plane, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, I hope I get there. It was raining so hard. I just, you know. So I go, I mean, I had the gift of desperation, and I, I also knew that I did not want to come home and do what I was doing before I left. I, my, 
husband and my daughters made this tremendous sacrifice for me. And um, I just, every morning, I left them in God's hands. I prayed that um, I would be willing to do whatever I needed to do to recover. <coughs> and I honestly pray that prayer every day today, still. And uh, so they, you know, they tell me that I have to do 90 meetings in 90 days for my aftercare. And it's a little more challenging than we actually had to go to the meetings. They had no phone meetings. Mm -hmm. So I went to two OA meetings in the evenings, went to AA and Al-Anon meetings in the mornings because my kids had, were going to school a little bit. And I go to this Al-Anon meeting. And remember, I thought I was a high-bottom person. And this guy goes, you know, I didn't lose my wife or my kids or my job or my house. I lost myself. And I just was so like, oh. Um, I didn't know how I felt about anything. I didn't know what I thought. I was, I was completely lost. And I'm thinking, wow, you know, what can be worse than this? You know, I really had total emotional, spiritual uh, bottom. Um, so, uh, let's see. So. In that intervening 10 years, I, I really tried to live in 10, 11, and 12 in my own bumbling way. Uh, when Actually, the next 20 years after that. And I, you know, when I stayed abstinent, and I, um, I did try to stay close to God, and I was always trying to help somebody else. So, um, but anyway, about 10 years ago, I, a little over 10 years, I found this big book step study meeting, OA meeting, and um, it's a precursor to the vision for you. And, I am, I am a very enthusiastic vision for you person, and um, it is so enriched and deep in my recovery, and really has taught me how to live in 10, 11, and 12, especially 10. I had no idea. I thought 10, you know, like, if I do something wrong, I just apologize, and I'm good. You know, and to really be able to look at, see my part, and all that is, you know. So, anyway, today, um, I have... I want to say my willingness, mostly God's grace, have been living in recovery for 31 years. And on February 15th, I celebrated my anniversary. And um, that morning, my husband says to me, well, I guess it was like one of the best decisions you ever made to go to treatment. Mm -hmm. And I said, no, it was the best decision I ever made. And then I said, and marrying you was the second best decision. <laughs> so anyway. Um, it was also the hardest thing that I ever did. And, um, but I'm, I'm so grateful. So um, anyway, um, so just like the disease negatively affects the family, the recovery super positive you know, affects the family. So my daughters now, they're 38 and almost 36. And I know that they would be completely different people if they grew up with me with my disease. So I have, I really have the best possible relations with everybody in my life. And the key word is possible. Mm -hmm. I thought it was best. It's not. It's really possible. And um, uh, let's see, what else did I want to say? So the last two and a half years have been uh, multiple challenges, let's put it that way. My mom having a stroke being at the top of the list. And um, it's, it's like it is in Bill's story. He says, um, on page 15, he says, this is a design for living that works in rough going. And he also says, on 68, he says, we're in, the, we're in the world to play the role he assigns. Just to the extent that we do as we think he would have us and humbly rely on him, does he enable us to match calamity with serenity? So I've been able to do that, and I, I, I feel that God, in all the 
challenges that I have, that my message is always, you be at peace so you can bring peace. So that's kind of what I'm trying to do. And um, I came um, to lose weight, and I, I am 55 pounds lighter, but I got this relationship with God that helps me with everything, and that's, that's really the most amazing thing. So, um, and I'm, I'm really, I want to say I'm happy, joyous, and free. Not in the way that, you know, unicorns and butterflies, and <laughs> I'm, free from, I'm free from fighting food and weight, all that crazy chatter in my head that was 24-7. Um, I really am neutral with the food. I'm, I'm so happy to be living in recovery, and I, it, is, it, is, it is the joy of my life to be, um, to share, you know, to work with others and help other people. It is definitely the bright spot in my life. So, um, let's see. So, okay, the other part in that paragraph was, I was to know happiness, peace, and usefulness in a way of life that's incredibly more wonderful as time passes. So today I have a life of meaning and purpose, and I can be uniquely useful. But the other thing I've found is that in all these challenges I've had, I really thought that I could only help people with food problems. And it's turned out that with some of these other challenges that I've had, that I've really been able to be even more useful for those people. So my prayer each day is um, show me how I can be most helpful and useful. Help me to joyfully pass it on. And thank you for equipping me to do so. And that's it. Thanks. All right. Sunny, it's your turn. All right. So um, now I'll share uh, my step one experience. Um, so I guess I'll, I'll start with my childhood. Um, just kind of like what Bill does. He he talks right from the get-go, right, about uh, his, his relationship with alcohol, that first paragraph. So my relationship with food. Um, when I think of my childhood, uh, I have a lot of food memories. A lot of, a lot of my memories are, are around holidays and food. Um, but there's also a lot of fear-based memories. Um, my parents <coughs> fought frequently. I remember living in a, a lot of fear. And um, my sister was the vocal one, and I was not. I, I would just kind of keep everything in. Um, I learned years later um, that at the time my dad was a rageaholic. He'd go on really intense rages. Um, and so I would hide. And I don't think I really realized it then, but I was definitely finding solace in the food. Um, I was a kid who, who was a rule follower. You know, I, I tiptoed around. I, I didn't want to, like, rock the boat. Um, you know, I just wanted everything to stay like this. And uh, if it couldn't be smooth like this, um, I, I kind of, like, I didn't know what to do with myself. Um, when I was about 12 years old, we, we always did like our, our doctor appointments in the summer before the start of the school year. My mom took us three kids to the, the doctor's office and I, I kind of always knew that I was bigger than the other kids. Um, you know, I had three very close girlfriends and they were all very thin. Um, and I knew that, you know, my legs were bigger, my belly was bigger, and somehow that translated in my mind to, um, I was, I was kind of like less than, you know? Um, 
but I, I uh, was probably just a little over five feet tall. And uh, I remember the number on the scale, 165 pounds, and my mom burst into tears. And uh, that memory like really stuck with me. Um, but I think that really, that was, that's important for me because that was the summer I fell, and it's not, it's not her fault, that's for sure. I've spent many years blaming her, but it's not, it's not her fault, you know? It's the way that I tried to manage my life. I said, you know what? I wanna make mom happy, right? If I lose weight, she'll be happy. Um, I'll be happy. Um, everyone will be happy. Everything will be all right. So that was the summer I started my, actually my compulsive exercising really started. Um, I lost weight to, you know, in a healthy way, um, well, I was walking a lot, but it came off steadily. It didn't come off quickly. Um, and I was, you know, considered a normal average weight by the time I was in eighth grade. But something inside of me still, I'm not as thin as my friends, you know? I'm, I'm just, I want to be thin like them, right? They're getting all the boys' attention, junior high. Um, they're, they're better at sports. They're getting picked first for gym. Like, I want that too, right? And then comes, you know, going from the private Catholic school, this little tiny pool, to the big regional public high school. And oh, the opportunity to make myself new. And um, so early in high school, I really, I, I kind of uh, took it to a new level, um, looked up a lot of stuff on the internet, and kind of, I guess, like brainwashed myself, you know, into certain, um, ways of thinking and treating my body and uh, I, I developed anorexia. Um, it wasn't just for attention and to get a better body, it was a means of control for me. My parents were fighting just about every night at the dinner table, loud, loud screaming and it was always about money, it really, it always came back to money. And I remember pushing my plate away, and they, eventually they said, Ksenia, cut it out, eat, you know? I said, I'm not eating until you stop. And then that would get them more mad. And, uh, but at least they weren't fighting with each other anymore. They, they were, you know, yelling at me to eat. Um, but, but something had happened inside of me where I, I latched on to that. Um, it, it felt like it gave me power. And really it was delusional, it, it's illusion of power because you know, I, I got very sickly. Um, and by the time I was 16, um, they were basically about a week away from putting me in inpatient hospitalization. I was really scared. You know, I was about 100 pounds at 5'7", and uh, I, I, you know, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm scared because I was having a lot of heart problems too. Um, and I really thought I was going to die, which they told me I could. <laughs> so I was like, okay, I'll listen to, to the dietitian. I'll follow this food plan, whatever. Um, so I got well, but at the end of high school, there were a couple of times where I was, I was feeling some intense emotions, um, like loneliness, sadness. Um, and I, I felt kind of like disconnected from other people. And I remember eating and I'd eat a lot of really good tasting foods, but like with other people, 
And uh, I had gained a little weight by the end of high school, and that kind of scared me. And I said, mm, I don't like this. I'm, I'm going to go back to my old ways. And in college, again, a new chance to remake myself, um, I, I latched onto it. I was academic driven. I was there to do my work, and I was going to maintain this rigid you know, way of eating and exercising. And uh, I lost weight. I, I lost weight. I was thin again, but I was still eating consistently. So I wasn't, you know, I guess, medically speaking, I wasn't uh, qualifying for anorexia anymore. Um, and uh, I thought it was good. I thought everything was good. But still, you know, I had a lot of trouble connecting with other people, a lot of trouble. Um, and I had gotten this job as, as a, a building manager for a student center. And it was like, I was constantly uh, fighting myself with it and annoyed with other people. And I couldn't, it's like, I, I was just trying to do everything myself. I wouldn't ask for help. I've got this, I've got this, I've got this. Um, until I couldn't get it anymore, right? I couldn't do it all anymore. And uh, that's, that's when the binging started. I was, uh, I guess I was 19, 19, right? Sophomore year of college, the very end, um, I started, I'd eat, and then I couldn't stop eating. I remember eating a whole bag of chips and being like, oh my God, what did I just do, you know? And um, I tried to get help because I was scared, but I didn't want people to tell me how to eat, so I, I just, was like, you know, one foot in, one foot out, right? And what happened um, is this is a progressive disease and I gained about 85, 90 pounds. I don't know, I stopped weighing myself once I got past 210 um, in, in a year. And I was still in college and I didn't want to go back. I was taking up all kinds of not great, you know, um, activities like smoking and uh, drinking alcohol. I never liked to drink alcohol, um, but I was, I was mad. I was mad with God. I was mad at everyone else. Um, and I just, it got to the point where I was doing everything I could to try to get a handle on this. And everything else was falling apart. My grades were suffering horribly. Luckily I didn't flunk out, but I wanted to leave college. I wanted to drop out. My mom wouldn't let me. Um, I was a nutrition major, so that was incredibly embarrassing, you know, every day going to those classes. Um, it, it was just, it was, it was a mess, and I kind of, I kind of slept through and, and just, I, I got to the end of college, um, and uh, I still struggled with relationships, and I, I would kind of go up and down and wave between like 170 and 200 pounds. I was miserable and isolated. Um, but I was, I was getting by still, right? I was still getting by. And I got it, my first job right outside of, of, uh, of college. And again, the disease progressed. I couldn't, I mean, I lived for just, okay, what am I going to, I'm going to hit up the target. That's the next parking lot over from the lab where I worked at. And I would, I would just like think of everything I was going to buy and I couldn't even wait until I got home. It was like a five minute drive to my apartment. I'd have to open up all the bags and shove all the food in and I'd feel oh, such relief. 
And then I would just keep going. And I'd be so full. By the time I actually got home, it didn't matter. I'd bring all my bags up, right? I'd maybe say hi to my roommates, make my way up the stairs, close the door, lock it. Like, I can't tell you how many times I did that. Draw the curtains, right? And just eat and eat and eat. Um, Things got pretty miserable. Again, I was very isolated. I moved back home and things were a mess with my, my family. I was, I was, you know, harming myself. It was, it was a mess. And I hit, I hit um, a bottom, right? And I remember that last binge. And uh, it was like January of 2013. And the next morning, you know, I called someone who I, oh, I forgot to mention when I came into OA. Um, I, I had gone to OA when I was 20 went to three meetings, I was like, no, I'm different than these people. Came crawling back when I was 23. And I went to a, a meetings consistently, and I was like, this is terrible. And I was like, maybe I have what these people have, maybe I don't, I don't know, but I just, I, I don't know what else to do, so I would go. And I met some people, and um, that, that day, when that night when I was like, I can't do this anymore. And the next morning I called someone who I had met in, in the meetings and I, she's recovered. I said, please, will you help me? I need help. And um, she, she helped me. I, I bought my food scale that morning and uh, I, I put the food down. I identified and put the food down and I, I worked steps kind of haphazardly, but you know, moved through. I felt a lot of relief with the fifth step. And then things just kind of like plateaued. Um, eventually I realized I owed amends to, to my family. There were a lot of other people though. <laughs> and, uh, that became apparent in, in the months and years following. Um, but I didn't get, I didn't have the freedom that I experienced today. Mm-hmm. And what it took for me to experience that, unfortunately, was a really, really terrible relapse in, um, spring of 2018. Um, A lot of wonderful things had happened during that period of recovery. I got accepted and completed medical school. I got into residency. I met my husband. We dated in med school. We married three days after we graduated med school. Um, And then a lot of not great things were happening. Um, My husband was in residency in Ohio. I was in Pennsylvania. You know, I was, I felt alone. Um, And residency was a lot. It was a lot. And the first thing I'd say that that started to go is I stopped going to meetings because I was so consumed by the residency. And before I know it, you know, I'm really skimping on my, my prayer and meditation. I'm definitely, I'm barely making outreach calls, barely. And, uh, the last thing that was still intact was the food. And it, it, it was, it was the, the last thing to go. Um, April of 2018, things really, things got, I felt so hopeless with work. And uh, I was really struggling in the residency. The marriage, it was so strained, you know, less than a year married. And I remember, you know, my husband and I had gone away and, uh, it was, he had said some stuff on that trip that I was like, you know, the, the last good thing in my life is, is going to the shitter, you know? Um, I lived in a lot of fear, a lot of fear, and I was relying on myself, 
and I couldn't see that. Uh, as I walked, watched him walk on his plane, I turned around and I saw the food and I went, I just went, there was no question. I just went for it. And um, that was the start of a five and a half months of hell in relapse. It's a very progressive disease. My binging was way worse. I could barely put together 24 hours. And I was scared because I had the responsibilities of residency. And uh, before I know it, right, the months are going by and I'm making some major medical errors in the hospital. You know, it was scary. And I was so consumed all the time. And I was so sick. I'd wake up so hungover, you know, 5 a.m. I got to go to the hospital, you know, to take care of patients. I, it was, you know, I was having suicidal thoughts because I'm like, there's nothing left. There's nothing left. And there was this little bit, you know, I'd, I'd started going back to meetings. I knew what the answer was, but I could not get abstinent again. Um, and the truth was I needed help. I really, really needed help. I needed accountability. I needed to get honest with, with something outside of mm -hmm. me, right? Um, and, you know, I did have an opportunity through people, you know, and I believe it was God's grace, his plan. Um, I got this offer to, to go away, to uh, get the help I needed, and to it, it, would, it would get me abstinent. It was, it was a recovery center for food addicts and you know just uh, that's my experience is that I I needed <laughs> I needed to be on lockdown I really did um because I couldn't make it through 24 hours without picking up and it's funny because that morning that my husband took me to the airport in September 2018 it was so dark and it was so rainy <laughs> just like Martha's experience um but uh when I landed, you know, when I got there, it was sunny and it was, it was like, I felt very broken, but I was willing. I was willing to do whatever they told me to do. Um, and also importantly, I knew, I knew I had to, there was someone who had been, I'd asked to be my sponsor and uh, we did, um, we stayed in contact and about two weeks into my abstinence there, we started back in the beginning of the big book. And by, I'd say uh, fall, um, October, I had, I had done my fourth and fifth step. I was back the end of October. I was, or maybe I was doing my fifth step the beginning of November. By Thanksgiving week, I was making a lot of amends. By December, I was sponsoring. And I tell you, the freedom that I got through going through this process, coming out of that relapse, is unlike anything I've ever experienced before. But it wouldn't have happened if I hadn't experience that level of powerlessness that I did. You know, it, it takes what it takes for each one of us. You know, I used to wonder, what's it going to take? What's it going to take? Especially the relapse. Like, I know what I have to do. What the hell is it going to take? And it took a lot of brokenness, you know? Um, but I'm grateful. I'm so grateful because I wouldn't have been brought through the way that I was in, in the fall, I don't think. Um, I wouldn't have been humbled to to really work this program. Um, happy, joyous, free, like so far from perfect, right? I'm not in residency right now. I have no idea how, if, when I'm gonna get back and it doesn't, it doesn't matter. All that I have is today and life is good. And it's because 
it's because of my my higher power and you know that reliance on on that power you know I don't I'm not in charge anymore and with that comes such relief and freedom um so that's little or that's what I'm going to share on my story and I'll and I'm, I'm going to wrap up with more about alcoholism so we're going to start on 30 and this um I have five minutes. Okay, sorry. <laughs> That's all right. Um, this chapter's a warning, so it's, may, it's mainly about people who believe the lie that they could drink when they're sober. This is the second half of um, the first step, unmanageability, the mind and the mental obsession. So it starts on 30, and it says it talks about how we're bodily and mentally different. So I knew I was bodily different. I, you know, I absolutely cannot handle sugar and flour I you know I I know what's going to happen I have the phenomenon craving and I have to have it mentally I thought about food 24 7 um, control and enjoy um, I think about um, the story on page 334 that's crossing the river of denial and she says that when she controlled it she didn't enjoy it and when she enjoyed it she was completely out of control so it says, we learned that we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were, I'm going to say, compulsive overeaters. This is the first step in recovery. The delusion that we're like other people, or presently maybe, has to be smashed. Um, I have utterly destroyed. And I think about, you know, in, in, our, in our OA 12 and 12, it has, you know, in the, the new one, it has what the principles are at the beginning of the step. And so the principle for step one is honesty. So, you know, we have to fully concede. Uh, let's see. I am I'm trying to figure out how I want to do this. Um, I, I, you can ask me on a question if you want to hear my, men, my methods of control. I think I'm going to. There's a bunch of stories that, you know, that try to illustrate, you know, people who were dry and then they have this thought that they can have it again. So the, the moral of the story for the man of 30 is, let's see, um, if we remain sober for a long stretch, we can drink normally after that. And so it says, though, if we're planning on stopping, I'll say compulsively overeating, there must be no reservation of any kind or any lurking notion. I have for the word lurking, I have lying in wait as an ambush. Okay, so it says, you know, whether you can quit on a non-spiritual basis depends on whether, you know, whether you've you know, um, lost the power to choose whether you will eat or not. I had totally, uh, I, I say that food is my drug of no choice. I could not choose whether I would have it or not. Once it was in my system, that was it. Um, this, Ksenia was talking about this, this utter inability to leave it alone, no matter how great the necessity or the wish. I had plenty of necessity meant with health problems. Wish I, I wanted to do it more than anything in the world. I could not do it. Uh, so we talk about Jim. Jim's a low bottom person. So I'd say Jim did maybe the first three steps, but the way I think about it is he didn't do the other steps, which will um, take away the obsession, straighten out the mental twist, let's put it that way. So when he's got this idea that he's going to mix whiskey and milk, 
he says, hmm, sounds like a good idea to me. And, you know, the, the point of that was that he failed to enlarge his spiritual life. So, um, let's see. Then we talk about the jaywalker. Um, my favorite part in that is it says, you would expect him if he were normal to cut it out. And I have written, he's not. <laughs> However intelligent we may be in other respects, where food has been involved, we've been strangely insane. But isn't it true? And I like to say, we always say, that insanity is doing the same thing and expecting different results. I think for me, insanity was knowing exactly what was going to happen and doing it anyway. That, for me, was my insanity. And I was, you know, and then they're going to get into Fred's story. It says that he's absolutely unable to stop drinking on the basis of self-knowledge. So Fred, how are we doing? Um, Fred was a high-bottom person, but Fred hadn't even taken step one. He's kind of like, yeah, I understand what you guys are saying, but you know what, like, I know what's up now, and I'm going to... His plan, you know, he was going to exercise self-control and stay on guard. That was his plan. And they, they kind of say to him, look, if you've got, like, this um, alcoholic mind, they told him what was going to happen. So it does happen, and he says, he says, yeah, uh, yeah, I, I've got this alcoholic mind. And he comes back, and um, he says, self-knowledge would not help in those strange mental blank spots. Then it says, it meant that I would have to throw several lifelong conceptions out of the window. So I wrote self-sufficiency, figuring it out, being right, having to know all the answers, it's my job to fix everything. And it makes me think of the set-aside prayer where we say, you know, help me to set aside everything I think I know. And, and um, I am so willing to do that these days. I know whatever I think, I know that I don't know everything. And most of the time, I don't even know what's right for me. So I'm, I really can be there. Then he says, spiritual principles would solve all my problems. And he's talking about the 12 steps, and I can honestly say that that has been true in my life. Um, I would not exchange its best moments for the worst I have now. And I always say, one of my prayers is I, I say to God, you know, I, I say, thank you for the dignity of abstaining yesterday and the privilege of abstaining today. But it's not only that, it is that food isn't an option. And that because it's not, I can stay connected and then I can have the power that I need. So um, in the, on the last page, it says that we're 100% hopeless apart from divine help. Um, totally. His defense must come from a higher power. And I, I think this is a beautiful segue into step two. Because step two is not about us having this perfect idea of what our higher power should look like. Step two is about our need for a higher power because we've already gotten to how powerless we are. We're obviously not getting it done and that we need some other power in our lives. So I love this program because it's just, it's open and all inclusive. You know, we can, it can be whatever we want. You know, we're, we're all, we can all have this thing. So um, anyway, so grateful to be here and um, I'm so happy that Kinsenia let me share in when she was having her bottom I we I told her I'd do the 
doctor's opinion with her and we were at a meeting and, and we had to leave the room and we sat in my car and we did the doctor's opinion. And that's one of my most fondest memories, but I am beyond amazed at her recovery and being able to watch it. So thank you. Yeah. That's all. Thanks.